If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, as we continue our time in the gospel according to Luke, will be in verses 21 through 40 this morning. I wonder if you consider yourself a patient person. I don't. I'm working on it, though, I think. Think about it at that time when you've had to call customer service. Maybe of a major phone company that you just can't seem to avoid. I don't know. And once you go through all of the prompts and press all of the different numbers that are related to the issue you're calling about, you're then directed to some elevator music and um, an operator, if you will, that says, oh, so politely, your wait time is only two hours. And to make matters worse, they quickly follow up with the less desirable phrase, but oh, so encouraging news, your call is very valuable to us. That probably challenges your patience, I'm sure. Maybe you considered yourself a patient person until you found yourself on the other end of one of these phone calls. I want you to put yourself in the place of faithful Israel this morning. For 400 years, you've been patiently seeking Yahweh, observing His law, trusting in Him, and faithfully surrendering your life to Him in great anticipation that He will send His salvation, His Messiah, to you. We see from our text this morning two individuals that somewhat are representative of faithful Israel. We see Simeon, who is a man filled with whom the Spirit rests upon, who longed to see the coming Messiah. He longed for this so much so that God the Spirit told Simeon through divine revelation that he, Simeon, would not die until he looked upon the face of the Lord's Christ. What a promise that must have been. Think about that. We are given no indication of when Simeon was told this by the Holy Spirit. Was it days? Was it months? Was it years? We can assume that because Simeon's death is mentioned, that he was probably advanced in years. Potentially wondering day by day, would this be the day that I see the Lord's Christ, the Messiah? Then we're introduced to another individual named Anna. We're told she is a prophetess, a long-time widow living in the temple, worshiping daily through fasting and prayer, waiting for God's salvation through the Messiah. And as we will see today, as they have patiently waited for many years now, the Lord's Christ has arrived. And the Lord's Christ has arrived in the person of the Son, Jesus. And Simeon makes this strong declaration with obvious overtones from the book of Isaiah about the person and the work that Jesus came to accomplish. And Anna, having seen and having heard of this Christ that has come, is a model of worship and a model of evangelism as she wastes no time in giving thanks to God for Jesus and speaking of Him to all of Israel who are waiting for redemption. All of this passage this morning is focused upon Christ. There are many things that we can draw from this passage, but they are all focused on who Jesus is, 
what He came to do, and then how we can rightly respond to the revelation of God in the Son, Jesus Christ. And if there is one thing Luke wants us to see in this account, it is that Jesus is the salvation that the world needs. He is the salvation that has come first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile, a light to the nations, and glory for Israel. And this morning I pray that we magnify Christ, salvation in the flesh, and glorify God for what He has done for us through our worship and through our evangelism. So if you are able, would you stand as we read Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. The Word of God reads, And at the end of eight days, when He was circumcised, He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before He was conceived in the womb. Verse 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of, tur- a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord... They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, you have given us, by your great grace to us, your holy word. God, you have revealed to us in your word what you would have us to know about you about us. And God, I pray this morning, as we approach Your Holy Word, that You would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive. God, may You grace us with Your presence through Your Word. 
And may we be transformed more into the image of Christ. As we love Christ, follow Christ, and serve others. We pray this in His name. Amen. You may be seated. So the events we're considering in these verses this morning, as well as much of the first chapters of the Gospel according to Luke, may in fact be the testimony of Mary herself. We know from the book of Acts, which Luke also authored, that he probably spent an extended amount of time in Jerusalem while his traveling companion Paul was in prison. We see this in Acts 21.17 through Acts 24, verse 17. And it's not hard to imagine that Mary herself was a part of the Jerusalem church, the church family there at the time. And so this would explain how Luke had access to some of these details of Mary's inner life uh, and the two events that we see this morning that took place in the temple shortly after Jesus' birth. And so with this in mind, I want to make three observations about Jesus this morning that I hope deepen our knowledge of the Scriptures and what Christ has done for us, and in turn, as they do, deepen our love for Jesus, who is our Savior, who is the Christ, who is the Lord. And so the first observation I want to make this morning is that Jesus was born under the law. Jesus was born under the law. In Galatians chapter 4, 4, the Apostle Paul wrote this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. In order for us, as we approach this text, in order for us to appreciate the significance of Simeon's declaration that we're going to spend some time on in just a moment, that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the servant of Isaiah, we must first examine these verses. Namely, Jesus' circumcision and why Mary and Joseph traveled to Jerusalem in the first place to enter the temple to offer sacrifices. And so Jesus, the Son of God, He's not only born of woman, we've affirmed that He's born of woman, we've looked at the incarnation, He was born of Mary, which means He was born of woman, but He's not only born of woman, He is born under the law, which is why these things are taking place. He has entered into all of the requirements and all of the circumstances of the covenant with Abraham and Abraham's seed. And so Jesus was born under the law, and everything that the law required of Israel was required of Israel's Redeemer, Jesus. And so it was therefore necessary as devout parents, Mary and Joseph, very devout parents we see here in this passage, it was necessary as devout parents that Joseph and Mary would see to it that their firstborn son was circumcised in accordance with the law. And so Jesus' circumcision is evidence that the Son of God was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. Even in this act, when Jesus was a baby, an infant, he was identifying with those whom he came to save. As Redeemer, remember, remember Jesus is fully human. That means he's completely human. He identifies us in every aspect of our humanity. And this was necessary in order for Him to redeem every aspect of our humanity. 
Jesus must go through every human cycle and subject himself to full humanity as fully human uh, and as, as complete human in order to redeem every aspect of our humanity. You see, it's not only our souls that are saved. When we talk about salvation, we're not just talking about our souls being saved, but Jesus has redeemed our bodies, our whole being. And we know that one day He will raise them up upon His return to be just like His glorified body. And so even in infancy, and this is amazing when you think about it, even in infancy, as Jesus identified with sinful humanity, although He was sinless, identified with sinful humanity, He was fulfilling the law through the righteousness of of his parents, Mary and Joseph, as they took him to the temple. Now let's consider why they were coming to Jerusalem. So the details of this account show us that Joseph and Mary were obedient law-keeping Jews. They were obedient to Yahweh as they kept his law and his commandments. And so they arrive at the temple in Jerusalem with baby Jesus for two specific purposes. First, the law dictates that they offer up a sacrifice for Mary's purification after childbirth. You see this in Leviticus chapter 12. According to Leviticus 12, since Mary gave birth to a baby boy on the eighth day, this baby was to be circumcised, and then 33 days later, she would enter the temple to offer a sacrifice for her purification. And so this would put Jesus at roughly 41 days old as he entered the temple so that they could make the appropriate sacrifice in accordance with the law. And then second, the couple must also consecrate or dedicate, if you will, Jesus to the Lord. Luke 2.23 loosely quotes Exodus 13.2, and 15 to explain why Jesus' parents are compelled to consecrate Him. You see, according to Exodus chapter 13, and many of us know this story, According to Exodus 13, 1-16, Moses instructs the Israelites to dedicate their firstborn and their livestock. God ordained this important rite on account of the final plague that was poured out on the firstborn of Egypt and Israel in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12-13. And since he spared the firstborn Israelite children who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, as he spared the firstborn Israelite males from destruction, God legally then claims them as his own. And Exodus 13.2 states this, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. And so the firstborn males represent the entire family unit. The, the firstborn livestock represent the entire herd or flock. We see this in Exodus 4.22. And so by setting apart Jesus to God and declaring Him consecrated or holy unto the Lord, Mary and Joseph affirm the truthfulness of Gabriel's prophecy that Jesus will be the Holy One. Luke encourages his readers to view Jesus not only as the firstborn of his immediate family of Mary and Joseph, but also as the firstborn of all of God's people. And if Jesus is the firstborn of humanity, then we should rightly expect that the salvation of the nations is central 
to his ministry. And as Joseph and Mary are journeying to Jerusalem to fulfill their obligations as law-observing Jews, Luke makes it known to us that they're coming to sacrifice a pair of turtle doves or two pigeons. And what Luke is doing here is giving us a str- some strategic insight into the lowliness of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. You see, in Leviticus chapter 12, if you could not afford a lamb to sacrifice for the woman's purification, you would sacrifice two pigeons or two turtle doves that would be much more affordable. The parents of the king of kings, the parents of the lord of lords, could not afford a lamb to sacrifice because they were poor. There are some out there who teach that poverty is a sin or poverty is a sign of God's condemnation or displeasure for you. This is nonsense. You see, Jesus and His family were poor and none of these things were true of the Son of God. But do not miss their obedience here. Mary and Joseph, despite their impoverished circumstances, were faithful to Yahweh. This is a genuine picture of Mary and Joseph's obedience to God, even in the midst of their their lack, even in the midst of their difficult circumstances. You see, what's true of us, unfortunately, is much of our obedience to God is often dictated by our circumstances. When times are tough, we often cry out to God to change our circumstances instead of seeking Him in the midst of our circumstances. But Joseph and Mary come to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices in obedience to the Lord. Joseph and Mary are demonstrating for their young family that no matter what, their family will follow Yahweh and be obedient to Him. Parents, I want you to listen to me for a minute. Righteousness, even in poverty, makes a huge difference in the lives of our children. Faithfulness, even in difficulty, makes a huge difference in the lives of our children. Are we teaching our kids to value the things of this world, or are we teaching our kids to value obedience to God? Jesus' parents couldn't afford a lamb, but guess what? He was the lamb. Jesus' relationship to the law is an important part of His saving ministry. He was born under the law. And though He rejected man's religious traditions, He obeyed God's law perfectly. He bore the curse of the law for us and set us free from bondage. Those were the requirements of the law that brought Joseph and Mary with the baby Jesus to the temple. And as they arrived at the temple, they arrived at the same time as a man named Simeon. Second observation. Jesus is the Lord's salvation. Jesus is the Lord's salvation. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit, in the Spirit into the temple. 
And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. Simeon, like Zechariah and Elizabeth, was part of the faithful Jewish remnant that eagerly looked for and longed for the Messiah. We aren't told much about Simeon, but we can gather from his readiness to die that he was a man of age. Jewish tradition tells us he may have been 113 years old, but that's just Jewish tradition. Just take it for what it is. Luke tells us that Simeon was righteous, that Simeon was devout. Typically when Luke uses the word righteous, he's describing someone's conduct toward other people. And devout usually has reference to being careful about his religious duties following Yahweh. The righteous and devout Simeon also had the Holy Spirit upon him. This indicates that the Spirit was on him continually, and we know that the Spirit communicated to Simeon at some point that he would see the Lord's Messiah before he died. And so here is Simeon. We don't know much about him. We don't know what he was doing, potentially minding his own business. Maybe he was at home making dinner. Maybe he was at home in prayer when the Spirit then prompted him and led him to the temple. Lo and behold, Simeon arrives at the temple to meet Mary Joseph and the Lord's Christ, the Messiah, the one he had been waiting for and longing to see. Imagine this scene. Imagine what it must have been like for Simeon as he arrives at the temple. Day after day, month after month, year after year, Simeon patiently waiting upon Yahweh to send the Messiah so he could lay his eyes on him and die in peace. That's all Simeon wanted, to see the Lord's Christ. When you know the Lord, you can certainly find peace even in death. Now here is, here he is, Simeon. Been to the temple time and again, I'm sure, as he waited in anticipation on the Messiah. Here he is, and here is Jesus, the Christ. Right here in the temple. Simeon wastes no time, sees the Christ, the Spirit is upon him, he knows it's the Messiah, and he takes this little baby up in his arms. And I know as this scene unfolds, I know some of our first-time parents are hearing this and their heart is racing. You think about the first time you bring your baby to church and everyone wants to touch the baby and hug the baby and kiss the baby and you get anxiety like nothing else. I remember that. And here's this random old dude, Simeon, Comes up to Mary and Joseph, first-time parents, with their 41-day-old baby. Give me that baby. They don't know this guy. They've never seen him before. And he takes the Christ into his arms. He brings him close to his chest, potentially. looks him in the face. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he blesses God. And he blesses the Son with a prophecy. He says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This prophecy has been historically referred to by the Latin name, the Nunc Dimittis, means now released. Simeon feels he's seen the Christ. He is now released to die in peace. 
And in this prophecy, Simeon alludes to Isaiah 49.17, one of the most prominent passages in the book of Isaiah, when he exclaims that Jesus will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And according to Isaiah 49.1-7, the famed servant figure is true Israel who restores the remnant of Israelites. But God also charges the servant with converting the nations. Luke twice alludes to this verse later in the book of Acts in verse chapter 1, verse 8, and then 1347, which gives, gives us indication that Jesus' identity as the Isianic servant takes on a special significance for the whole Luke-Acts narrative. And Luke tells us that Simeon is a man who is awaiting the consolation of Israel. Consolation here is an eschatological term that relates to Israel's restoration in the new creation. And it's a phrase, this phrase, it's a phrase that conjures up Isaiah's prophecy about the arrival of the Lord's comfort and the Lord's compassion. Nearly every line of Simeon's prophecy contains language from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, chapter 49, and chapter 52. And Simeon reveals the purpose for which Christ was born. He was born to bring the light and glory of salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. His eyes have seen Yahweh's salvation, and that salvation is Jesus Christ. And according to Isaiah 49, the prophet labels Israel as my servant, Yahweh's servant. And in the same breath, Isaiah predicts that the servant will raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And this servant must be an individual because he serves as the catalyst for the restoration of the remnant of Israelites. Or the preserved of God's people. As one commentator recognizes, the famous servant in this subject of four, is the subject of four songs in the book of Isaiah. 42, 1 through 9, 49, 1 through 7, 54 through 9, and 52, 13 through 53, 12. That one we know very well, Isaiah and his suffering servant. Yahweh promises to redeem captive Israel and to plant them in the new creation through the servant's faithful and atoning ministry. And the word servant occurs nearly 20 times in Isaiah 40 through 66. And it often refers to the idolatrous nation of Israel, who repeatedly disobeys God and fails to bring salvation to the nations. But within this same section, a righteous servant comes on the scene who obeys God, who suffers on behalf of the covenant community, stimulates belief within the nation, and brings Israel out of exile. And Luke is quick to highlight Jesus' role as true Israel who forges a remnant within Israel that brings the gospel to the nations. Luke's appropriation of Isaiah 49.6 to Jesus is one of the closest passages in the New Testament that demonstrates Jesus' identity as the true Israel, as He brings those into the people of God. So Simeon's blessing on the child recognizes the initial fulfillment of these precious promises from the book of Isaiah and sets the trajectory of what will unfold in the Luke-Acts narrative. Jesus is the servant who creates a people, servants, who are then a blessing to the nations. 
Jesus is the Messiah that all of Israel was looking for. And by His grace, Christ opened up salvation not only to Israel, but to us as well. Simeon told Mary that this child was destined, actually destined to be the cause of the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And as Luke's narrative progresses, we will see that Jesus' ministry effectively splits the nation in two. The Jewish religious establishment, for the most part, will see Jesus as someone to be spoken against. Even as many others, including Gentiles, receive Him as their deliverer, as their Savior. He tells Mary that the coming of this Comforter Redeemer means that a sword will pierce her soul. Whatever this specific meaning of that phrase, it is clear that being the mother of this child will cause great suffering for Mary. And for the first time amid all of the joy in the beginning of Luke's Gospel, we see the cross looming in the distance. This child would indeed indeed redeem God's people Israel, the true Israel. But it would be through great pain and great cost. The details of Jesus' salvation are still hazy in these earliest chapters of Luke's Gospel. But Simeon reveals the purpose for which Christ was born. The consolation of Israel is also the light of the world. This baby will bring the light and glory of salvation not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. He is the Savior of the world. And Simeon had been promised that he would see the Messiah before his death. And when he held this child in his arms, he knew that the promise had been fulfilled. And don't miss the power of verse 30 when Simeon declares, My eyes have seen God's salvation. God's salvation is not a what, it is a who. Jesus. To see Jesus is to see God's salvation. Without seeing Jesus, you will not see God's salvation. How important is it for people to see God's salvation, Jesus Christ, before death? Church, people are dying all around us and going to hell. We need to be real about this. Hell is a real place. It is a place where those who reject Christ, who do not receive His salvation and commit their lives to Him, it is the place they will spend eternity. It's nothing to shy away from. Hell is not a temporary place of purging. It's not a place where you go until you pay for your sins. Hell is a real place where those who do not receive Christ will spend eternity paying the penalty for their sins. It is the place where the worm doesn't die. We need not minimize this. If you do not receive Christ as your Savior and Lord... Scripture tells us you will go to hell. But God has sent to us in the person of Jesus Christ His salvation. God sent us a Savior, someone to save us from eternal damnation, and that person is Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ went to the cross on our behalf, and the cross says to us that God loves us. God loved His people so much that He sent Christ born under the law to redeem those who were under the curse of the law. Look upon Christ and declare, church, for my eyes have seen your salvation with Simeon. This means that our experience of salvation is not primarily seen in a change of our circumstances or a program of self-improvement, but in a relationship. God did not send us an impersonal force or a guide to better living. He sent us His Son, Jesus. And so the Christian life is not primarily a code of conduct or a philosophy of life. It's a relationship with a living person. Our relationship with Jesus displaces everything else to the periphery of our lives and becomes central the central reality that controls each and every day. It's not your Sunday only box. It controls each and every aspect of our lives from your role as a spouse, a parent, your job, your occupation, your extracurricular time. Everything. We know God's grace when we look on Jesus with eyes of faith and we say, this is God's salvation. Third observation. Jesus is our motivation of worship and evangelism. Look at verses 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. If you believe the gospel, simple as this, if you believe the gospel, that Jesus is the salvation of Yahweh, God in the flesh, then tell others. Simple as that. If you believe that is true, we should tell others. And we see that here from Anna. We're introduced to Anna, and I want you to give notice of this. This is very important, I think. Anna is an older saint, at least 84. A widow, a prophetess, we are told. She lived in the temple where she worshipped and fasted day and night. And I read a pastor comment on Anna this week as an encouragement to older saints that I think is significantly important. It was a great pastoral word to older saints from Anna. Sometimes age has a way of making people bitter rather than thankful. And a lot of that just comes with life. You see a lot, you experience a lot. The older years, the later years are difficult years. I was talking to one of our brothers about this a few months ago, just going, it's a difficult season of life. Friends, family are passing away, bodies failing. It's a very difficult season of life. And there are churches with many older saints, but they're not like Anna. Because of all the various seasons of life, hardships and suffering and great loss, As I said, it's easy to become bitter. It's easy to become hardened. I've talked with many in our own congregation about this very thing. But I want to encourage our older saints this morning by looking at Anna. 
As we age, let us become more expert in giving thanks to God. Here's Anna giving thanks to God in her older years. Let us become more expert in giving thanks to God for thousands of days of fresh mercy that He has shown us. Many great graces and mercies that many of you can recount over many, many years in your lives. Anna gives thanks for her Savior and worships Him daily, we're told, in the temple. In her golden years. What a testimony this is for those of younger generations to look on. How encouraging it is for younger generations to look on our senior saints and see joy in the Lord. Thanksgiving and worship. This is one reason in our prospective members class that we say that our church promotes intergenerational worship. Because we find it of great value for our younger generations to be next to and with our older generations together in the same worship service, singing the same songs, glorifying God together. As the older generation accomplishes what Titus promotes in teaching the younger generation how to love the Lord, how to worship the Lord, and how to be thankful. I know my heart is greatly encouraged by our older saints who have walked many roads and gained way more wisdom than I can ever have imagined. I'm encouraged by so many of you and your service unto the Lord, even in your old age. We have so many godly, godly senior saints here, and I am so grateful for all of you. I'm encouraged by your dedication to Christ, your dedication to the church, and what a testimony that is. I want my children to see it, I want to see it, and I want others to see it. And although many hardships have come your way, you remain faithful, like Anna. You remain joyful, and you remain worshipful. I pray this is all of us as we get older. We need older faithful saints to continue to set an example like, like Anna in an older season of life. Anna sets an example for worship and evangelism. Anna, too, a faithful Jewish saint waiting patiently in anticipation for the coming Messiah. She heard of the Christ at this very hour, and she begins immediately to give thanks unto God. How often do you give thanks to God for Jesus? I think often we give thanks to God for Jesus when we come here on Sundays or on Christmas or when we're initially saved, but then we almost develop a sense of entitlement or the reality that God became man in Christ and took away our sins is no longer fresh to us. We should think upon Christ daily and give thanks to God in worship for sending us the Messiah, Jesus. We should give thanks to God daily because we've looked upon the face of Christ, our salvation. God has spared us from the eternal punishment we deserve because of Christ, and this should provoke us to thanksgiving. The more we get to know this God and this great Savior, Jesus. I pray that if there's anything that describes us at First Baptist Olo, that it is we are a thankful people, a grateful people, at what the Lord has done for us in knowing Christ. Second, what does Anna do immediately? She starts telling people about Jesus, the Messiah. She becomes an evangelist. She uses her gift and call as a prophetess to declare the good news of Jesus' birth. She believes, and so she believes, she then speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth 
speaks. I pray that we would all declare the good news of Jesus Christ and Anna encourages others to trust in Him. This was spirit-inspired praise and spirit-inspired evangelism. What a testimony. Even in her old age, Jesus was born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. This is the gospel message. This is what Luke is conveying to us this morning. Redemption has come. The Redeemer has come. Isaiah's servant has come to bring us into the true Israel. And through Christ, the true Israel, we are made partakers in the salvation that is given to the true Israel. The question for us all this morning, will you receive this message? Will you praise God for what He has done in Christ this morning? And will you share this message with others? This message that we rightly say is good. This message that is not only for Jews, but for the Gentiles also. Jesus is the only Savior. God's redemptive purpose is revealed in Jesus. And so this morning, let us look upon Christ and declare together, My eyes have seen your salvation. Pray with me.